Hi, you are now listening to The Secret Life of a Grad Student. I'm Megan. I'm Laura, and we are two grad students who want to share the untold stories of graduate students past and present. So I'm with Audrey. Today we're going to talk about the imposter syndrome. Hi, and I am Audrey Vespo. So I studied civil engineering. I did most of my studies in France up until the completion of my master's degree. And then that's when I moved to the U.S., did another master's, and then did a PhD. And I'm currently working for a construction tech company called Hetera which does prefabrication and construction. And my current position is technical program manager in the R&D division. When did you graduate from grad I graduated, so first I did my master's in France, and I also did a master's in the U.S. It's a bit complicated because I graduated with both during the same year, and it was in 2013. And then from your PhD? PhD, I graduated in uh, December 2017. How did you become interested in science and were there any early influences? Okay, so I so I think generally in high school and even younger, I think I was generally interested in a lot of topics. They, I just knew which topics I really didn't like, which were geography and history. And I think mostly because it was most of a lot of, of facts and dates to learn by heart and, and probably because at that point in your in your education you don't have to really think strategically about you know what happened or even like uh, in this topic you don't have a lot of strategic thinking happening it's more a matter of how much you remember by heart which I don't yeah. think I really enjoyed and so basically I knew that I loved all of the other subjects and topics and so from French literature, language, learning new languages, English, Spanish, German, and mathematics and physics, and all of these topics I really, really enjoyed. And so I've been curious from a very young age about all of these topics. And then when I was in high school, basically after when you're around 15 or 16, you have to pick in the French curriculum, you have to pick between a business curriculum or a more scientific curriculum or a more uh, literature-oriented, what we would call the arts in the U.S., I think, uh, curriculum. And that's when I picked a scientific curriculum as opposed to business and literature. I think there was a general uh, understanding or even misconception, I would say, about the fact that the scientific curriculum was known as being harder than the other ones. And I don't think that it's valid today. But this is, you know, back then when I was 15 or 16, that was how we were seeing those other curricula. And I think that's the reason why I picked the scientific one, because I thought, oh, it's more demanding, harder. And I know that I've always been very hardworking. And for me, this is one of my highest values in life, like just working hard. And I felt I was up to the challenge. And I remember back then, even I had I even discussed about this with my mom. And, and I, I really loved even writing, just like, you know, for the French literature, literature class. But then she was like, oh, I think you could do the scientific curriculum. And if you're able to do it, then you should. So that's how I picked it. And then from like, a, so that's when I started to really study more sciences. And then uh, you, I went to Place de Paris, which, which was a lot about mathematics and physics. And so very heavy in those topics and, and some engineering. I think the reason why I got really attracted to this topic was more because I felt that they were more demanding than other topics. Yeah. And I think in general, I just like doing stuff that is hard <laughs> more than... I think I'm generally curious about a lot of stuff, but I just felt for me doing those and taking those classes and studying those topics were harder than than 
studying other topics. I, th- I think, it, so if I have to kind of like look back, I wouldn't say I was in full admiration for, you know, that person or that other person. In my family, no one did sciences or engineering. And so I don't think that I had like one strong model I could look up to. Even in high school, if you ask me who were your favorite teachers and professors, I really had strong models in lit- literature and even languages. I, I really loved my French literature professor and I'm so in touch with him and, and same for some, you know, um, you know English professors and, and, and Spanish professors. But in the end, I think I, I picked sciences just because I thought it was harder for me. And then I just... <laughs> And so you did your PhD in civil engineering. When and how civil engineering if you wanted to pursue as a career? So so in French, when you study engineering, you study a lot of different topics. So you do a bit of programming, you do some mechanical engineering, you do some electrical engineering. And so it's very, very different from the engineering American, American engineering system where you really take one area of focus and you have some minors in addition to that. So for example, you would pick civil engineering and then you you study everything about structural engineering and concrete mixes and all of those things and then you have some minors in addition to that which is really not the case in France I think they are I think they train like well-rounded engineers but without a high emphasis on one specific area and so my diploma from France is a lot more oriented towards industrial engineering and mechanical engineering, although nothing is written. But then the reason why I studied engineering at UC Berkeley, I had been in touch with some people from my school in France that had also studied at UC Berkeley. And I basically sort of interviewed the ones that went to UC, attended UC Berkeley. And one of them really, really liked that program. And from what he was saying about the program that I wanted to go to, that I wanted to attend at UC Berkeley, I thought that I would be a good fit and this is what I was looking for. So he put me in touch with that professor from UC Berkeley. And then I started to do a bit of research uh, for that professor. And that's how it really my interest and confirmed my interest in that program. That's how I knew I really wanted to join that program in civil engineering. Then, you know, you always try to analyze in retrospect why you would be interested in a specific topic. And so I guess for me, if I go back to my childhood, I know we were living in a very old house and most of the time the house would you know have one room that would be like you know renovated and I feel like I spend most of my childhood living in a house that looks more like a, a job site than anything else <laughs> and so and I think just because it was you know expensive to just do it all at once and so my parents were very strategic and they would start with one room and then repair that room or retain that room and then move to another room and so this is one and then the second thing is I have to go back and try to analyze how I got interested in construction because both of my grandparents worked in construction one had his electrical company and so he was an electrical subcontractor and then the other one was a general contractor contracting firm uh, but basically he was building houses for people in his village and, and I think where my inspirations came from or how I took it probably as a kind of a standard in the family. And so when you did your master and then your PhD at UC Berkeley in this uh, program, did it reinforce this passion for uh, civil engineering? So as mentioned, I was working with that professor for a summer and doing a bit of research for him. And back then I didn't know much about construction, but I, I think I was still a hard worker and I did some research basically on construction claims. And basically the way you became really good at is that reading a lot of court cases and construction claims and that's how you really understand really details of how you build a construction claim and, and so on and so forth. So it was something that I studied on paper. But then what I really reinforced my interest is um, the main construction class 
where it all became very much applied. And so we had some field visits and basically field tours and basically would go to the field and tour a job site and have people working on the job site kind of explain the dynamics of the job site and how they were organizing workflow around that job site and how they were trying to increase and, and part of the research that, I'm, that I used to do and I'm still interested in is how you really increase the reliability of commitment of the people doing the work on job sites. And so it was very yeah. much applied. It was very tangible. So it's, it's really being in touch with people and understanding, you know, what are the roadblocks when you have to erect a building? What are the roadblocks they're facing and, and what's really happening on the on a day-to-day basis? So visits, I think for me, were kind of like a trigger. I think I just enjoyed uh, walking around job sites and trying to understand because they all have some uh, interesting stories. And I think it's very dynamic and a bit uncertain. And I think I like that adrenaline of the, of the job site. Definitely. <laughs> funny because it's really interesting to see that you wanted to push the limit of the system. It must have been like a lot of polytechnic area in terms of improvement. So today, yeah, we are trying to express and give stories about people experiencing imposter syndrome. So can you tell us why you thought that the subject you studied in grad school was important to you before you started working on your thesis? When you do a PhD, you're looking to have an impact to some extent. And yeah. so what was important for me was doing or having a PhD in a topic where I felt that a lot needed to be done. And again, it's all relative, right? So I guess like every single subject or topic deserves, you know, people doing research on them. And that's how you push the boundaries of knowledge and everything. But it was very, very blatant and obvious that the construction industry seriously needed some people just focusing on that and yeah. really understanding how you can, you know, decrease the duration of projects or making sure that projects are not run over budget. And how do you solve all of those problems? And so for me, that's how... I felt like it was an obvious industry where very few people were actually devoting their career to from a research standpoint. And so I felt that it was a very obvious area where I could have a serious impact. And I think in general, that's what I was looking for. And, and so what type of people did you imagine do the type of work that you wanted to do? So when you do research, right, I think you want to have an impact, but you are not sure how. And so when you do research, I don't think that even when I was doing my PhD, I really knew the type of job. I wanted or how I would get that impact. And even today, right, like I'm still experimenting with my career where I try to do something and I try a job and and I try to see what, what is it that I like in this job versus what is it that I don't like in this job. So I don't think I have fully figured it out. I knew that my people that I would be mostly working with would be for sure mostly male. And because the industry by itself is really dominated by males in general. So yeah. I knew I would be working in this kind of environment. And so then I knew I would be working with, you know, like uh, passionate people. And so that's kind of like, so these were basically Basically, the type of people I would I would be working with, mostly male people, and then second, very passionate people, because I think in general the construction industry is a really tough world to evolve in, and I think if you're not passionate, usually you don't stay in that industry. Okay, that's interesting. So, okay, regarding that, like when you did your research on your thesis, did you ever feel like an imposter? And can you specifically recall external factors that play into this feeling? So I think, uh, and I was thinking about this uh, before even starting to speak on, on this uh, podcast, but, and I was trying to recall when was the, the first time that I really felt the imposter syndrome and when was the last time that I really felt the imposter syndrome. I can start yeah. with the last time, which was today, 
uh, work. <laughs> I was discussing, I was talking with my boyfriend. I was like, hey, I have to do that interview. And like, what is it to feel like an imposter? And basically, he told me like, well, you asking like this right now and asking, you know, why you would be the right person to talk about that syndrome really shows that, <laughs> really proves the point. And then, so I think this is the last time that I really experienced the imposter syndrome. And and so what I want to say also about the imposter syndrome, the, the way that I'm seeing it, because I'm pretty sure that people have a lot of different definitions, but, you know, this kind of feeling that you don't belong or that you don't qualify for what you're being asked to do, although yeah. you probably highly likely you have all that it takes or the knowledge that it takes to do what you've been, you're being asked to do. So anyway, and so the first time that I I really experienced the imposter syndrome was when I picked the scientific curriculum in high school. And because I had a lot of interest in the other topics and I had some professors even coming to me and say like, oh, why did you pick the scientific field when, you know, you would be a great writer or you would be a great journalist? And I thought that I was trying to do something. And even when you don't have your parents in that field, it's really even hard to even picture yourself in the future. So I think I, that's how I really felt the imposter syndrome the first time because like, who am I to pick that field just because I just like working hard? And so that's <laughs> yeah. how I felt. I wasn't Belonging. And and I wasn't belonging. And to be fair, even in high school, and a lot, I know a lot of people that I that I even worked with. I know a lot of people have never worked, or even at that age, were not working very hard to get where they were. And I think even in high school, I would still put a lot of work in whatever I was doing. So I just felt that I was kind of like, um, how do you say, cheating the system, just because I I could go and, and this scientific curriculum, but I know to be in that position, I still had worked hard. And I know most yeah. people had skills or looked like they had some skills. And I was telling myself, I don't have the skills. I just put a lot of hours to get the good grade. And then one acting major time that I, I realized I felt a bit out of place or that I wasn't belonging is, and so I think this is a big difference between the American system and the French system in which when you apply to UC Berkeley, you have to write a personal statement and a statement of purpose. So basically you're selected by a committee, but they look both at your grades, but also at the essay. And they, you also have to complete the GRE and get a certain grade. Anyway, long story short, they are still waiting. They're still expecting you to write a statement of purpose and personal statement. And the personal statement, basically the goal is explain why you will belong and why you will why you why yeah. you really think you qualify and how exceptional you are and what you can bring to the program. And so I guess and that this is, you must have a lot of moments that you were like, okay, all those phrases in my brain that is my imposter syndrome we're talking right now, it has to shush. <laughs> so well and so that's kind of like the big, big challenge because in the French system, we're not used to writing in length how great we are and what skills we have. And it's a very weird and awkward exercise when, so imagine a group, like a French, a class of French engineers trying to write those statement of purposes. And back then you're still, you know, 20, 21. So you kind of like have to distance yourself and from who you think you are and, and it takes several iterations. And I wish I could have found the first draft that I wrote because it was probably describing myself as a very average person that just worked hard oh all God. of her life. And <laughs> but you know, lucky or lucky enough to have some professors that knew the American system, right? And they knew know what professors at UC Berkeley are looking for. I think they're really looking for, you know, exceptional individuals and people that 
you know, can bring something different. And at least the program that I went to and I realized after the fact is all of us in the class have a different background and something to bring to the table that was different from the next person. And so anyway, it was a very tough exercise. And I think it's, and even when you read that essay, right, even after sending it, you're like, oh my God, is that, you know, did I overstate anything or how yeah. will that be interpreted? And then it's even worse when you get accepted, right? You're like, well, I wrote this statement of purpose and this personal statement. Yeah. But is it really how I'm seeing myself? So what really helped me on that is so in the summer before applying, I had worked with a professor and we managed to publish a paper just in one summer and it was peer reviewed. And the fact that it was a peer reviewed paper mm-hmm. gave me a sort of a sub- um, objective evidence yeah. that I was just not pretending something that basically yeah. the, the time that I put in writing this paper with that professor and was considered as being good enough published in a journal paper. Do you remember what you was through your mind when imposter syndrome set in and what do you do to stable those moments? I think uh, triggers feeling, uh, uh, feeling like an imposter usually happens when I change environment and when I'm emerged in a new situation, a new group of people, and that I'm feeling uncomfortable. And most of the time, what's hard is most of the time it's intentional. Like I really worked on that goal to be, you know, apply to UC Berkeley or do a PhD or even work at a company that I'm working for. And so it's like self-inflicted being uncomfortable in those situations. But actually it makes sense because first I think it's a great thing to want to challenge yourself and get out of your comfort zone. And it is usually when imposter syndrome is coming up because you go out of your comfort zone and it's just there to tell you like, uh-oh, you're going out of your comfort zone. Like, are you sure about that? <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. And so I know it's triggered usually when I change environment. And I think the reason why, so if I go to like another level of, you know, why, why, why it's the case, it's also because in that new environment, I know that I'm going to be surrounded by people that I don't necessarily know and I don't necessarily know me. And it's easy in your like current environment to have the imposter syndrome disappear faster because you're surrounded by people that have worked with you for some time and kind of like remind you of the achievements you've had. And versus when you're really immersed in a new group of people, then you feel like you have to prove yourself even more. And like, if I don't prove myself, then they're really going to think I'm, you know, I just pretended I was someone I, I'm not. But so did you have any moment the imposter syndrome disabled you from completing a task or doing your research? Well, so for sure, I and I think, I don't know if it's related to imposter syndrome, but I don't know anyone in their PhD not thinking about quitting at some point, right? Like a lot of people, I would say, and I don't know the percentages, but probably 80 or 90% of the PhD students, they all think about doing something else because they feel like, you know, it's never ending, that they're not good enough and so on and so forth. This played a role for sure, but what's reassuring for me for the PhD is that I knew that if I kept working hard, hard, hard and put in a lot of hours, in the end it would show. Now I think the imposter syndrome just make me work even harder and put in a lot more hours. And I think um, it didn't prevent me from writing a paper, I would say, but it prevented me from having a better work-life balance. Because yeah. I felt that I continuously had to prove like, hey, I can work really hard and I can move really fast and, and complete those different things very fast. And I felt that I could have given myself a bit more leeway in, and a better work-life balance during the PhD. And I think that's the influence it had. The, for sure, the impact that you know this has on my current life is 
I still see, and I know everybody has seen that, but there is like a big trend of people just writing on blogs and posting on, on websites like Medium and, and just writing a lot of, of articles that are not peer reviewed. And I still struggle to just post those blogs or write those articles that are not peer reviewed and just share that with a group of people. And I say that imposter syndrome just prevents me to be as I would like to be with respect to my writing. Very interesting. Did you ever share that with any PI during your grad school? And how did they respond that to you? I think in grad school, I think my PI knew I was working generally really hard. And uh, she's been very supportive in the sense of she would, she, I think she was very demanding, but I don't know any PIs that, that is not demanding during yeah. a PhD. And so I think it's, it's sometimes could contribute to sort of like, am I good enough kind of question? Yeah. Or, or did I pretend I was someone else and then my PI is realizing I'm just not good enough or just meeting her standard or his standard. And so, but I think it's part of the challenge of doing the PhD because this reassurance and your skills may not necessarily come from your PI. In my case, when I was really, really struggling and really self-doubting, and for example, when I was at the point of thinking about, hey, am I good enough to even complete this? Should I quit? She was there to tell me, no, 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 I'm just very, very demanding, and this is all it needs. And it's just not, okay. it doesn't mean that you're not good enough. Uh, and then you have friends, right, that remind you like, hey, you can do this. And it's not about you, are you good enough? Or did you pretend you're someone else? And you have the strengths and abilities and knowledge to just complete this. So stay the course and, and you'll get there. Okay, so you mentioned before that today you still have some moment of imposter syndrome. Like for example, you say that your imposter syndrome prevents you to have a, like a, a work-life balance. Do you feel that today you get it a bit more under control? Well, so I think, and maybe I'm going to disappoint a lot of people, but graduating with a PhD doesn't make the imposter syndrome disappear. Yeah. Just, it's probably a way of, of uh, it's probably the way that your brain was wired at some point in your life. And then it's a matter of rebuilding those connections and making sure that you are aware of what triggers this feeling. But it doesn't disappear from the time you just get your diploma put in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, that's kind of like the disappointment to when it ends. So I kind of like, and I don't know if it's also the point of the question, but I there are like a few things that I'm doing because I'm aware of it. And I think first being aware of it is super important. Uh, yeah. So there are a few things that I'm aware of. And I know this work-life balance is impacted by the fact that I mean that, that I don't belong or that I'm not good enough. And I really, really try hard to maintain that. And so making sure that, for example, Saturdays is a day that I never work um, on or keeping those. And I know some people would say like, hey, how about Sunday? But anyway, one day at a time. <laughs> and so I think keeping those boundaries really clear and telling yourself, well, hold on, are you going to work another hour because you feel like you're not good enough or are you going to work? work another hour because it can be done tomorrow kind of questions right yeah. and I think being honest to yourself really helps and then knowing that and I know even at work recently in September I was assigned to a new initiative which I felt was challenging and really big and usually when I'm in doubt and when I overcome by that uh, when I'm overwhelmed with the feeling of being an imposter then that's when I start to become a bit crazy and work a lot of hours so I had written one page of kind of like affirmations of I am strong, I believe in myself, I know that I'm smart enough, that I'm good enough. Wow. Kind of like all the sentences that you have to tell yourself. And this is because of the one of the podcasts that I listened to, which is also like a good like a coach. And then the other thing that I did is understanding or kind of like reading myself 
all of the achievements that are not affirmation phrases, but really tangible achievements that I thought were objective achievements in the sense yeah. like, hey, I graduated with a PhD at the age of 25, or I published that number of papers that are peer-reviewed and all of those things and kind of like going back to the factor that I'm yeah. not spiraling in like a negativity cycle. So this is like really yeah. things that I do, but then I have a few other things that I'm doing and I don't know if, so for example, it's finding, you know, people that remind you also what you have achieved. And so having a mentor at work, I mean, my boss is very supportive and I think what really helps also is when you have performance reviews on a regular basis and she was yeah. very uh, tangible in my performance review that we had a month ago. She was she really listed a lot of things that I had accomplished and even took for granted. I, I mean, I didn't even realize yeah. all the things that I just completed. And she went through the list and she was like, oh, you achieved that, you know, cost reduction thing and, and so on and so forth. And so it was, it felt really good. And it's another thing that I can add to my list of tangible things <laughs> that I achieved. And so this was really helpful. And then and it depends, you know, which stages you are. So if you're doing the PhD, then having some people around you, some friends remind you like, hey, you wrote, you know, you wrote that paper or, hey, remember that time where you just did that experiment and it was totally a new way, a new protocol that you tested and it worked out. And so having some people that remind you also what you tend to forget or when you're just like stuck in this confirmation bias of like why you're not good enough. Yeah. So that helps. And then... Also accepting to take a bit of risk um, and not listen to your inner voice. So for example, last year, someone asked me to talk on like a French tech panel about construction. And I told myself like, oh, am I, do I know enough or do I have enough experience to talk about this? And then I remember even calling a friend and asking her like, hey, I know you have a lot of data on you know construction tech. And I started to study statistics about construction tech just in case I would was asked a specific question on that panel, which wasn't the case. The, the point of the panel wasn't to talk about, to, to test your like statistics knowledge about how much funding there is in like that industry versus another. Anyway, as long as you knew rough order of magnitude, it was good enough. So I kind of went a bit overboard with, you know, how much I, I thought I had to know. But then I told myself, hey, I think they're more looking into how I experience the construction tech world and what is my opinion on what happens. And and now that's approaching the end of the interview, do you feel that you are a good person to talk about the subject today? Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a good question. I think what I if I had to go back, <laughs> I I think I would tell myself that I shouldn't I should have tried to do that interview because I think I could have had a chance at like redoing the interview if I didn't know what to say. So I think I should have tried the first pass at doing that interview without even trying to think about what I wanted to say because I kind of like could expect which questions I would be asked around. So even trying to go totally, totally unprepared, I think would have been a good attempt to like say, hey, you you fit and it's not, you you know, you don't need to put that extra number of hours just fit. Yeah. Sometimes you can just wing it. <laughs> yeah. And so I think like getting more confidence in terms of winging things is also something that I'm that I'm trying to learn, but it takes a bit of time when you're just so wired to doing things in a different manner. Honestly, that was that was a great interview, and I think you brought a lot of good good advice at the end how to hand, how at least you handled your imposter syndrome. So thank you so much for sharing that, buddy. Do you have anything else that you want to add before we leave the interview? So well, thank you for hosting me and inviting me to speak on that. Um, and 
acting in general, it's never the feeling. I don't think we'll ever do this story. Just a matter of like how fast you can alleviate that feeling and and go back to what's essential and and how you can move on to or just execute the task that you're just afraid of doing. Yeah, no magic trick. It's just uh, yeah. <laughs> daily daily exercises that one can do to alleviate the effect. Indeed. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Audrey. Thank you, Doc. Thank you for listening to The Secret Life of a Graduate Student. Next week, I will interview Jamie Middle. We will tell us how she learned to not feel overwhelmed by her imposter and use it today as a check to know that she's pushing herself up. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.